Well, for those of you who have been worshiping with us this summer, you know that we've um, been working on a series of sermons that we moved through the Gospels where Jesus encounters uh, various people. And what we've noticed is that every time he meets someone, every time he encounters someone, those people walk away from that experience completely transformed and different. Um, And we're going to continue in that vein today, but maybe in a little bit of an odd way. You might maybe uh, wonder, gee, really, that fits too? But we're going to um, be in keeping with your bulletin cover. If you notice this morning, it's Mr. DeVille. Uh, Few people know that Cruella DeVille actually had a husband. Um, But do you know that, that, that that story, which most of us have seen in movie form or cartoon form of 101 Dalmatians, was actually written in 1956... Um, and the Cruella DeVille part, uh, the two names were put together from cruel and devil. And actually, it's, it's spiritually significant. It, you know, Cruella DeVille, she's this evil, horrible, manipulative woman who picks on little innocent puppies, 101 of them. Um, and she wants all their fur for herself. It's all self-centered. I mean, do you kind of see the parallel between what happens between Satan and those of us who are Jesus followers? And if you don't, hopefully by the end of this morning we, we will. I, I did toy with the idea of just reading the story to you, but I guess I can't get away with that. So the gospel lesson for today is uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Uh, follow along on the screen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written that he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came back, and they attended to him. So um, this young man named Bobby grew up in a, in a very uh, you know, upper middle class home. His father was a doctor. His mother was a stay at home. He had three or four different siblings. And, um, you know, Bobby was a a very intelligent kid, a really smart young man. However, he leaned more toward kind of the arts and music than toward traditional education. Uh, He also learned more to trouble than good behavior. And so uh, I think in his sophomore or junior year of high school, the private school that uh, he was attending encouraged him that maybe he would have um, better luck in greener pastures, i.e. the public school. Um, and so he went over to the public school and he really didn't fare much better there, but it was so much bigger that they couldn't pay much attention uh, to who he was or towards behavioral issues. And Bobby found his way into a drug culture and developed a drug problem, and his parents um, sent him to a faith-based rehabilitation center. 
where Bobby was exposed for the first time um, to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and came out and wanted to pursue that kind of thing. And so uh, he began attending a church and he got involved in the life of a church and he committed his life to Christ. And on the Sunday when Bobby was baptized, there wasn't a dry eye in the congregation because they knew Bobby's story, they knew from where he had come, and they knew the significance of this moment in his life. And Bobby joined a small group, and Bobby played in the worship band at church. Bobby pursued his discipleship with Jesus. But after about six months... Bobby got a little bit off track. He engaged in some immoral behavior. He was less disciplined in his spiritual life. He kind of backed out of his small group a little bit, and his spiritual discipline began to wane. And that is not an unusual story. I mean, how many of you have been on a spiritual retreat? You're gone on Friday night and Saturday and Sunday, and the speakers and the focus is all on building up your spiritual life, and you're going to have a great experience, and this is wonderful, and you're on a spiritual high when you come home, and you know you are going to do this and this and this to continue to build your spiritual life, and you are never going to backtrack. But four months later, the tyranny of the urgent has taken over, and you're back in your old routine, and that fire that you felt on this retreat is nowhere to be found. Um, or you read a book that has a tremendous impact on you and you're going to change your life and the way you focus on things and what you do. But after a few months, that focus begins to wane. Um, In a few weeks, they'll hold the uh, Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit. I'm not going to be able to go this year because I'm going to be on vacation. But I love the Willow... I'll catch up online because I love the Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit. And I always come away from that um, determined differently and to be a better leader and to do all of that stuff and I have it all written down and, and, and it works for a while and then after a while you kind of wane in your enthusiasm and kind of lose sight of what you agreed to do. Now, you guys from uh, Rio Hondo High School, you were determined to come to worship this morning and this is going to be a life transforming experience for you, I know. You're going to write about it on Facebook today and go, man, were we at a weird spot this morning, holy cow, what's this bluegrass music all about? So, uh, it's a very familiar pattern. It's a very pattern that Jesus was in. If you go back and read Matthew chapter 3, which for those of you who don't know is precedes Matthew chapter 4, Jesus meets John the Baptist and is baptized. And God says to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is the coming out party for Jesus as the Messiah. This is the anointing of God. The baptism is significant experience in his life. Everything is going to be different now for Jesus. And then, verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Immediately following this spiritual high, Jesus has to go into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. And I find it interesting. We kind of overlook this fact. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And the purpose he was led there for was to be tempted by the devil. Not to have a great spiritual experience, not to continue on his spiritual high. He was led there to be tempted by the devil, which I find fascinating. But one of the things we know about Jesus is that he was God and man at the same time. And this is our experience, right? Living with the temptations of Satan and the devil and evil on a regular basis. 
there are two things that I think we need to acknowledge right away that sometimes we overlook or don't like to talk about much. And that is, first of all, Satan is real. Satan is real. Some people don't like to admit that Satan exists. We like to talk generally about the evil that exists in the world and in our culture. We like to talk about sin and readily admit that that we're all sinners. But we don't like to admit or we don't really know how to talk about the fact that there is a spiritual leader of the principalities and powers of darkness. A Satan is a fallen angel and there are other fallen angels that he works with and commands to have influence on people and the world in which we live. Satan is real. And we have to acknowledge that and deal with him. The scripture talks about it. I mean, if, if indeed Jesus went out and was tempted by the devil, it would seem to me that that would remind us that Jesus is, that the devil is real. Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against ourselves or people out there in the world or even the culture. That's not where our struggle is. Our struggle is against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter warns the church that we should be alert and sober of mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil is real. Satan is real. We have to deal with a spiritual reality that our battle is against the devil who rules these principalities and influences of darkness. So secondly, what we learn here is that Satan has an influence not only on individuals but on systems and cultures and even institutions. So a young man walks into a church in Charleston, South Carolina with a handgun and kills nine people who are having Bible study. They find out later that the motive for that, the crime those people had committed that he had to justify in his mind, was that they were black. And black people needed to be killed. And we can say, well, that was an individual act. That was one person who obviously is kind of a lunatic and out of his mind. Uh, Somehow he acquired a gun, and now we found out that there were mistakes in having done that. If you want a gun, you can go find one. But he was raised in a culture where racism is spoken of. He wasn't raised in a vacuum. He didn't come up with these ideas on his own. There is a culture in our country and not just in the South where racism is encouraged and exists. There is a system by which it's us against them. And it's the influence of Satan and the principalities and the powers that encourage that kind of culture and that kind of racism. The gun violence that exists in the city of Chicago is blamed on gang violence and we've got to get the guns out of hand. We've got to get gun control, get the guns out of the hands of the criminals. Well, guess what? It's part of a culture. You're raised in a gang to stand for what you believe in. And the way you stand is to kill somebody who wants to stand against you. That's what you do. That's how you prove yourself. That's how you get your street cred. It's part of a culture of violence that exists that isn't limited to the city of Chicago. You know, there's a lot of fraudulent money managers out there. You hear almost every week there's a story about somebody else who stole somebody else's money that they tried to invest. And we focus on big names like Bernie Madoff and others. uh, Those people are evil. Well, they're part of a culture. 
part of a culture of greed and more and power and influence and proving yourself and having ego needs that need to be built up because you can produce a rate of return that no one else can produce. Of course, you're lying about it, but that's a whole other matter. Satan is real and Satan is at work in our lives and in the culture and the world in which we live. Jesus was baptized and affirmed as the Messiah. He was God's son. He's the one whom God loved. And then he was sent out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, by the devil himself. Now what's the, what's the devil's strategy with us? Where, where do you think he should attack us? Well, there's a hint in the story, right? What is Jesus' point of vulnerability? God had just said to him, You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And guess what? That's the exact point of vulnerability where Satan attacks. Right? Three times, with three different temptations, he begins with these words. If you are the son of God. Hold it. God just said I was the son of God. No, 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 no. If you are, maybe you aren't. There's a possibility you might not be. Are you sure you are? It's Jesus' point of vulnerability. <laughs> Those are the voices in our minds sometimes. Many people say, well, Jesus was a great example. Who could argue that? I wouldn't argue against that. Jesus was a great example. Many people say, you know, Jesus was a great teacher. I love Jesus because of what he taught. I wouldn't disagree with that either. But some don't believe that he was God. And some certainly don't believe that Jesus is the only means for salvation. And so that's our, our point of vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, isn't that kind of exclusive? Isn't that kind of arrogant to think that Jesus is the only way? And we hear those voices, and so we're a little reticent, and we begin to wonder, well, maybe there are other, maybe we should be more open, maybe we should be more open to other ways. Or certainly it can't be as simple as Jesus taught, right? I mean, a relationship with God and eternal life and salvation have to be more difficult than what he said. I mean, Jesus talked about grace, unmerited favor. It's a free gift. I mean, we, we don't even believe in free. I mean, there, we, we don't believe. There's no, there's no such thing as free, right? But it's a free gift. It's unconditional love. It's mercy, it's grace, it's forgiveness, it's all these things that we believe in as Christians, but we have an intellectual assent. But if you look just below the surface, we kind of slip back into a kind of a works righteousness mode right away. And it can't be quite that simple. And, and I have to do more. And if I don't check these things off the box and attend worship and get involved in the Bibles, then God's not going to find me acceptable. I'm afraid I might be punished. But I mean, we don't just, we, we don't live into grace and forgiveness and mercy. We can say we believe in it but, it, but it, but we see it all the time where we don't live into it very well. I mean, there, there has not been a time in 37 years of preaching where I haven't preached about grace and unmerited favor and God's free gift of salvation where someone hasn't come up afterwards and said, well, it, yeah, but. There's always a yeah, but in people's minds. Doesn't that give people a lot of freedom and just license to do whatever they want? Yeah, it might. Unmerited favor is unmerited favor. 
It's what it is. It's radical. It's unbelievable. It's hard to get a grasp. We want there to be more because we can't imagine that that would be the case. Unconditional love? Seriously? I don't have to earn anything from God? No. Now we might change our behaviors because of our relationship with God. We might live a thankful life. We might change the way we live. Around. But that's a result of the unconditional love and the grace we've been given. It's it's so radical we want to argue with it all the time because we just can't believe it. And we never experience that much with other people, right? We're always auditioning for their affirmation and for their favor and for their love. But God said it's unconditional. Those other motives that we have of trying to earn God's favor and love, I mean, after a while, don't you just get exhausted with that? It's like on this treadmill that you can't get off from. But if we really truly embrace and live in God's grace, his unmerited favor, his unconditional love, things that we think are so important don't make any difference any longer. Wouldn't you like to live with an attitude that says, whether I'm a failure or a success at work, doesn't make any difference. It doesn't affect me. Because that's not what life is about. Whether I'm good-looking, according to culture standards, or not good-looking, it doesn't make any difference. Because what makes a difference is that God loves me and gives us something, and that's the ultimate thing that really matters. And we get so hung up on this other, what we, what we wear and where we live and how we vacation, you know. Now, we all know that because you're from California, you're cooler than we are. But that's just a fact. But all this stuff we get hung up on really doesn't... I mean, it's just ridiculous. So Satan tempts Jesus in three ways. One is in the area of of what might be termed selfish materialism. It, it It says that Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days. He was hungry, and then Satan tempted him. It wasn't during the 40 days. It was after 40 days of fasting and praying, being out in the wilderness all alone. After all of that, when Jesus was hungry, then Satan came and said, Well, dude, there's stones there. Just turn them into bread. I mean, you're a miracle. Where you're gonna be able, you can do anything. I mean, did Satan know that a little while later, Jesus would take some little kid's lunch, one kid's lunch, and feed 5,000 people? <laughs> He's a miracle worker. You know, Greg talked about how a couple of weeks ago they ran out of wine at a wedding and Jesus took big jugs of water and turned it into gallons and gallons of the best wine. And he, It's a miracle. You're hungry. Take these stones and just turn them into bread. I understand that temptation. Serve yourself first is what Satan was saying. Use your miraculous powers to serve yourself first. And we battle that individually and culturally. We're bombarded with messages every day that tell us that what we wear and where we live and what we drive and how we vacation, our physical appearance, the way we look and appear, whether we receive or don't receive things, that that's what the most important thing is. And when we focus on those things, then we'll be happy. And Jesus says, well, man doesn't live by bread alone. 
Man doesn't live by human affirmation. Man doesn't live by what we wear or how we look or what we drive or where we go or how much money we make or what title or status we have. Man doesn't live by that. All that goes away. <laughs> but Christ's love and affirmation never goes away. Satan's work in our life is not spectacular. All he tries to do is at this point of vulnerability where we're very vulnerable, all he tries to do is create a little bit of doubt in our mind. Maybe God's not right. Maybe if I was a little taller, a little bigger, a little faster, maybe if I got a little better grades, people would like me better, I'd be more of a success, and that's what it's really all about. And Jesus says, no, you're my children whom I dearly love no matter what, and that's all that really counts. Secondly, Satan tempts Jesus to be a wonder worker. (laughs) Go to the top of the temple and just jump off, and I'm sure that angels will save you. And if you do something miraculous like that, can you imagine the number of people who would want to be a part of your posse? Wouldn't that be great? People would be flocking towards you if they get, the word gets out. I mean, think, Jesus, you could make a YouTube video and get a million hits the first day. Miracles are impressive. We love miracles. Love to see one every day. And Jesus performed miracles in his ministry. But he was what I would describe as a reluctant miracle worker because he knew that miracles just left people empty. Miracles were always done by Jesus as a sign, and a sign points you to the next place you have to go. You guys are going to be on this journey for, I don't know how long, two or three weeks, and you're going to have signs on the highway. They're going to point you to the next place that you have to go. And I know that the next place you have to go right after this is to eat, right? Get some food. We have no signs here, but we can tell you where to go to find food. Miracles are a sign. They point us to something. Jesus was a reluctant miracle worker because people get so hung up on the miracles, they forget that they're pointing them in a direction to someone else. He wasn't called to jump off the top of a temple to gain followers. He wasn't called to be a miracle worker. He wasn't called to enhance his own reputation. He was called to serve and be obedient to God. You know, it's a really subtle and easy trap that Satan can can cause us to fall into. I mean, you know, as Christian people, we're called to service. And there are people who love to serve other people and come alongside of other people and to help other people. And sometimes, however, even myself included, you wonder, well, am I doing that for me? Am I doing that to enhance my own reputation, to be known as someone who serves and as someone who's helped a lot of other people? And wouldn't that be great? And so it's a very fine line, isn't it? Sometimes as churches we can get hung up on wanting to be known as a great church and having great programs and doing great things and we lose sight of the fact that what we're really called to do is to serve other people. And when we do that, that's all that really counts. Let the chips fall where they may. The third temptation that Satan comes to Jesus with is to enhance his reputation and defeat his own ego. You know, if you worship me, Jesus, instead of this God that you're serving, all of these kingdoms that you can see and all of these people will be yours. I'll guarantee it. 
it was a temptation to alter the course that God had laid before him, was it not? I mean, if you're Jesus and you're out there in the wilderness and you know what you're called to do and be, you know that your calling is going to take you to a cross, that you're going to be beaten, that you're going to die, that you're going to be buried, that you're going to suffer horrible physically and spiritually. Sacrifice and service are not our first inclination in life. And Satan knows that rather than doing things God's way, it might be more tempting to do things the world's way. More enticing. And Jesus said, well, I'm called to worship the Lord my God and to serve him only. And there might be an easier way, and there might be a more popular way. There might be a a way that would be more attractive to other people and less painful and less work. But God doesn't call me to do that. God called me to be faithful. You see, in all these temptations, Satan is just trying to create a little bit of doubt. He's not trying to overpower Jesus. He's just trying to say, you know, maybe, maybe there's something other than serving God that you should think about doing. And for us, it's to create questions. Grace? Really? Mercy? Forgiveness? Unconditional love? Sacrifice? Serving? Giving? Those aren't the most popular books on the top ten bestseller list. And every time Jesus is tempted by Satan, he gives him a very brief answer. And it's a quotation of scripture, right? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but only by the word that God gives him. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Doubt is dispelled with truth. You see, this is what I think Jesus meant when he taught this very simple phrase that we use all the time but don't always understand exactly what it means. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. When Satan comes to tempt us with doubt and discouragement, or to leave the path of God before you know what sets you free from all of that? The truth. The truth of the word of God. The truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing the truth always sets you free. Which is why I think the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. The message of Christ. Let the word of God dwell in your heart. As you live as a community of people together, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God as you, as you celebrate the truth, as you celebrate the truth, let that dispel all the doubt. So Bobby stayed on the journey. And not unlike the rest of us, he had his ups and his downs, his successes and his failures, his achievements and his setbacks as a faithful follower of Jesus. The most important lesson that Bobby learned, he would tell you, is that he's not alone on the journey. Three steps forward, two steps back, he's never alone. 
And he knows in his heart and his mind that he cannot defeat the influence of Satan on his own. But he doesn't have to because somebody already took care of all that for him. Jesus is a great example. Jesus is a great teacher. But he's so much more. What Jesus really is for us is a savior. He, he saves us from the influence of the principalities and the powers of darkness. And in reality, he saves us from ourselves. Because he's defeated those principalities and those powers once and for all. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to the ways that we are are tempted in such subtle and deceitful ways. Keep us being faithful followers of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord but who is most importantly our Savior. We all pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.